0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show, the only show in the entire digital universe that has been tested by the state of California and has been found to emit zero carcinogens. That is a distinction of which we are justly proud. Yes, I say it again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show emits no known carcinogens. And so you may listen to the show in full confidence that your physical health is not in any way being compromised and your spiritual health, well... It might even be being improved, because this is the show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. Welcome, and thank you so much for being a part of the show. Now, I'm recording the show on Valentine's Day, St. Valentine's Day to be precise, And uh, the day honors St. Valentine, who was beheaded by Emperor Claudius II um, in the year 270. So 1,750 years ago, 1,750 years ago. Um, valentine was beheaded was executed by claudius of uh, the emperor of rome claudius ii for what well because valentine was illegally performing religious marriage ceremonies that's right and so if you thought that valentine's day was all about you and your girlfriend or you and your boyfriend, or you and your significant other, I will refer you back to an earlier show in this series, an earlier Rabbi Daniel Lappin show from a month or two or three or four ago, uh, entitled, Hey Girl, Do You Really Want to Be Somebody's Girlfriend? And in that show, I explained that uh, the only statuses that a woman can have are single, married, divorced, or widowed. There are no other statuses at all. Everything else is an artificial creation which has absolutely no meaning to it whatsoever. And uh, Emperor Claudius II Second. Uh, ruled that there were to be no marriages he forbade the marriages now he didn't forbid uh, sex and cohabitation but he forbade the process of a christian marriage and the reason was that uh, he did not want to uh, do anything well let's put it this way he wanted to increase the supply of young men for the army the roman empire by the year 270 Um, was in urgent need of soldiers and when a man commits in a religious marriage a covenant of marriage before god um, his loyalty now becomes primarily to his wife and to his god and only thirdly to his state to his government and emperor claudius Wanted to make sure that young men would retain their primary loyalty to the state, and that they would leap forward to pick up arms in defence of the Roman Empire, and to whatever corner of the world in, uh, that uh, to which he was sent, and that was his concern. So he he banned. Now he didn't mind um, young men having girlfriends because he knew that meant no commitment whatsoever. In this emperor claudius was wiser than many of the girls because the girls thought that the girlfriend status actually meant something but claudius knew and understood that that wasn't the case he didn't mind them having girlfriends because he knew he'd be able to happily and sometimes even more easily extract them from that um, strange relationship and herd them off under arms to become uh, soldiers of the roman empire and so uh, St. Uh, Valentine uh, refused to accept that, and he went ahead and conducted religious marriages um, uh, beneath the radar in, uh, in ways that uh, were clandestine and that uh, he hoped would escape detection. But he created couples that were married in the eyes of God, and for that, uh, Claudius executed him as I say, 1,750 years ago. So really, uh, Valentine's Day should be a celebration specifically for husbands and wives who are married, devoted, and irreversibly committed to one another in the holy uh, covenant of marriage. That's what Valentine's Day should really be. Of course, it isn't. And today it's come to be um a day that uh, is used for almost any um, relationships of almost any kind. and uh, And so I thought I would do a little bit of discussion with you about the actual intent of St. Valentine, what that was really all about, and what it was really all about was marriage come about because a young man or any man doesn't have to be young a man says to a woman look these words I'm about to say to you are the most significant sounds I've ever uttered in my life to date I've been waiting for years and years for the right opportunity to say them And more importantly, for the right woman to say them too. You are that woman. You are the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. You are the woman I want to share every part of life together with. And you are the woman with whom I want to build a family, a home, and a future. You are the woman I want to devote myself to for the rest of my days. I deeply desire the honor of supporting and protecting you, and I long for the delight of living in the home that you will help me create. My commitment to you is unwavering and not subject to anything other than the unshakable resolve that springs from the unbreakable promise I make to you today. I love you in the truest sense of the word, and that can never change. I intend to be the source of all good in your life. I want to fulfill your every need and surround you with security and tranquility. I humbly ask you to do me the biggest honor any woman can offer. I ask you to become my wife now and forever. And with those words, a couple commit to becoming married, and shortly thereafter, a wedding ceremony is conducted, if not by St. Valentine, then by a clergyman, by a priest, a pastor, a rabbi, somebody who conducts a ceremony that is not just a, a, rec- a recitation of homemade vows on the beach at Acapulco, Mexico at sunset, but is a three-part covenant, a covenant between a man, a woman, and God as the irremovable third part of that relationship. That's what a marriage is actually all about. Now, uh, you'd understand that uh, at, shall we say, an architectural school, uh, a student might submit a design for a, a beautiful bridge or a beautiful dam or a beautiful office building, and he might even get high marks for it. But when he graduates and gets a job at a company, he might walk in on his first day on the job and say to the boss of the architectural firm at which he was lucky enough to get hired, he might say, well, you guys, you are most fortunate to have secured my services because during my years at architectural school, I won three designs. I won a design competition for a bridge. I won a design competition for a office building, and I won a design competition for a dam. And so I'm making them available. You are my employers, and so these designs are now available to you. And his boss A wise old architect who'd been in the game for decades burst out laughing and said to him, at the moment, not only are your designs useless to us, I'm not even sure what we can put you to work doing other than cleaning the floor, sweeping at the end of the day. I'm not even sure you'd be any good as a draftsman yet. You have only begun your education. The baffled student looks hurt and indignant and says, what do you mean? My professors loved my design of the bridge. And the old architect smiled and said, yes, because your professor didn't have a client paying money for a design Your professor was never going to have to build that bridge. Your professor lived in the cloistered world of the intellectual elite, comfortably insulated from the harsh realities of the world. But now that you are working in a company that is going to have to find a way to pay you a salary every month and has to find a way to make you worth that salary, well, now we're in a place where you have to know how the world really works. And the way the world really works is that um, your bridge has to fit within the framework of governmental finance. So... It turns out you paid absolutely no attention to the cost of materials, but at my first glance of your bridge drawing, I see that you used needlessly expensive materials. We could substitute, but you probably aren't even aware of the cost of materials because they didn't teach you that at your architectural university. Not only that, but in the real world, There are other complications. There are complications having to do with air resistance, wind force, gravity, weights. You've got all kinds of real-world considerations that have to be taken into account. When you're drawing a bridge for a design competition, go ahead, have fun. But when you're designing a bridge that we expect a client to pay for and a builder to build and a bridge that is going to have to withstand the test of time, a bridge that we do not want to be sued five years down the road for flaws. All of those things that are ignored in your academic world, we have to pay attention to in the real world. And so then The baffled student says to his new employer, so are you telling me I wasted all my time going to university and covering all that material? And the professor says, no, you have to learn the pure mathematics before you can learn the applied mathematics. They taught you the pure design. They didn't teach you the applied. That's what we're going to do here. And our hope is that we will turn you into a useful member of this firm before your salary bankrupts us. And so we realize that there is value in learning the pure form, even if it's not how it applies much of the time in the real world. And so that's really what we do in a lot of things. Um, The design of many things, not just bridges. Uh, uh, You might well come up with a business idea in business school, But it's not necessarily, although nowadays very often it is, but it's not necessarily something that would work in the real world. But there's still value in knowing the pure aspect as well. And so even though the real world is a difficult, challenging place, real life can be messy and often is, there is still value in understanding the ideal, even if most of the time it doesn't apply and so if we speak about the advantages of being married to the only lover you've ever had obviously it's with the understanding that in the pure form that is true but in the real world in which we live that's going to be usable by a few people but not by everybody because the current secular pattern in western society in both europe and the united states the secular urge is to indoctrinate young people into premature sexuality that's what it is um why because the basic understanding in a secular world is that uh, we are absolutely nothing more than super evolved primates do you really think you're touched by the finger of god you moron don't be ridiculous you're nothing but another animal with all the healthy appetites of any other animal if it feels good go for it and so there is considerable mockery in the culture uh, about the value of virginity, for instance, subjecting young women to sad, tragic pressure and, um, and very often um, actions that they regret down the road. That's what happens. And so whenever you do occasionally find somebody talking or writing about virginity and its value in marriage uh, it's instantly ridiculed completely and what's more it's considered to be politically incorrect and it's it's tribalistic and it's patriarchal and it's politically incorrect you know all the criticisms of it and my point to you now is that i understand that the overwhelming majority of people who are getting married this year and including those who are going to be married in a covenant of marriage um, in a church or in a synagogue people are going to be married with the with every intention of it being a promise people are not getting married because oh we're in love because people who get married because oh they're in love Um, have to accept, obviously, that when they're not in love, they'll end the marriage, clearly. But people who are getting married because of a commitment and an irrevocable promise, even people like that, uh, are very possibly not marrying virgins. I wish it wasn't the case, but I understand real world versus ideal, I understand very clearly that there is a difference between applied mathematics and pure mathematics. And above all, I understand that there is value even in the world of reality, the messy world, the, the world of confusion, the world where we have to make the best of the situations in which we find ourselves. There is still value in preserving the vision of perfection and so all that is by way of explanation that when i speak about the advantages of marrying the one and only lover it's with a full understanding that for many of us that isn't the case it's with full understanding that in ancient jewish wisdom One of the key features of a wedding day is that it's a day of atonement. It's a miniature Yom Kippur. That's the day of atonement in the Jewish calendar, which is to say that it actually is a born again moment. It actually says that regardless of what may ever have happened to you and to me in our previous lives, from this moment forward, this is pure, this is new, this is fresh, this is a complete new beginning that you and I are creating together. I tell you all of this in order to point out something rather remarkable in the Hebrew scriptures. Um. And again, I know that we have many listeners who are not particularly into the Bible, and that's fine. But uh, you certainly are entitled to know the source of my information. If the source of my information was my own brilliance and my own knowledge, you would be wise to turn off and go and listen to something more useful. But fortunately, the source of of the information i have the great privilege of sharing with you right now is something called ancient jewish wisdom all i am is a transmitter all i am is a window into this data and so for those of you who are interested you can actually uh, reference this at your convenience for those that are not it doesn't matter because you just have to get the gist of what's going on here but um, in deuteronomy the book of deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, twenty-five, and i've just picked a couple of examples we have the phrase the young man and the virgin and uh, i have not checked the king james translation on which so many excellent translations are based but i'm i'm just telling you exactly what the hebrew uses and the hebrew uses two words bachur for the young man, Bitula for the virgin. Uh, You can go to Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 6, the old, the young man, and the virgin. And as I said, the Hebrew for that word young man is Bachur. Now, according to the Hebrew rules of grammar, if you add the sound R to a masculine noun, it becomes the feminine equivalent so ish is a man isha is a woman bahur is a man bahura would be a young woman young man and young woman and sure enough in modern hebrew in israel today it's it's used um, all the time ezu bahura yafa oh what a beautiful young woman that's something you'll hear um, on the streets of tel aviv every day Here's the interesting thing. That word, the female for Bachur, is not found anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures. We we have the Hebrew man, young man, Bachur, and then we use a totally different word for the young woman, a virgin. Now, you might say that on the surface of that, what it's really indicating is the statuses I spoke about earlier, the only statuses for a woman, single Married, divorced, widowed, and single would be synonymous with saying virgin. How could it not be? Again, in the world of pure mathematics. But there is a lot more to it because we have to understand what the meaning behind the word bakur is. Bahur is not just a word for a young man, but it is a word whose root is a very important Hebrew word which means to choose to select. So, for instance, um, and Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men. And that's Exodus chapter 17, verse 9. Moses said to Joshua, choose. And again, that word, is the verb to choose. But it also is the word for young men. So, what is the connection between the idea of a young man and the verb to choose? And the answer is is very simple. And that is, a young man is on the cusp of a vital choice. He has to choose a wife. Now, if you have been unduly influenced by modern sensibilities, if you take the position, Oh, today we've become much smarter, Today, we've come to understand that those old-fashioned ideas no longer apply. Look, I know that a lot of people think that those old-fashioned ideas, but they're making a terrible mistake. There are certain principles that are absolutely permanent. There are certain truths that are timeless. And one of them is that it is always a man that chooses a wife. It's not a woman who chooses a husband. Now, she certainly has the prerogative to say yes or no. She can accept or reject the proposal. But the proposals come from the man. Now, you might say, "Well, it's time to change all that." And my response to that is, look, it's free world. You know, go ahead and do what you like. If you want to educate your daughters to propose to their to their boyfriends, please go ahead. Um You know, I'm not going to be available to pick up the pieces, but uh, but you'll have to do that. What I mean by that, and that is it just doesn't work. You might as well say to me, it's time we change the law of gravity. It is really annoying that apples fall downwards off the tree when they come off the tree. They should just hang there waiting to be picked. They don't need to fall to the ground. Okay, fine, I admit it would be nice and convenient, but that's not how the world really works. It isn't. And and that is why it is that even after a half a century of gender egalitarianism, after half a century of driving home this constant refrain that men and women are exactly the same as one another, the bottom line is, that the overwhelming majority of marriages still come about because a man goes down on one knee and holds out a ring to a young woman and says, as I said a little bit earlier, and he says to her, I love you in the truest sense of the word. This will never change. I want to be the source of all good in your life. I want to fulfill your every need and surround you with security and tranquility. I humbly ask you to do me the biggest honor any woman can offer. I ask you to become my wife now and forever. But marriages do not come about because a woman goes down on one knee and holds out a Rolex watch to a guy and says, Make me the happiest woman in California and become my husband. And when I mentioned this in a speech a little while ago, Somebody said, well, actually, I know a couple that got married after the woman proposed to the guy. She just got tired of waiting. She proposed to him. They got married. I don't know what made me ask right away, but uh, I must have had an angel whisper in my ear. But I said, to him, by the way, uh, are they still married? And she looked a bit abashed. She said, well, actually, no, they got divorced. Uh, yes, I, I understand that. There's something intrinsically wrong with the dynamic in which a marriage is formed because a woman chose not a man. This is intrinsic. Well, it's very politically incorrect stuff, but I don't think you listen to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show to be fed the pabulum of conventionality, but you will hear the timeless truths of ancient Jewish wisdom. So, Again, you just have to know, I'm not decreeing that a young woman can't ask a man to marry her. Feel feel free, free world, free country. I'm just telling you, it's not going to go well. It just doesn't work. So since it is by nature a young man who's doing this most critical choosing, he is called in the Hebrew language a chooser or a bachur. But it would make no sense to call a young woman a female chooser because she doesn't get to make this fundamental choice. Uh, you know, there are a dozen songs out there from the 1940s onwards about a woman at home waiting for the phone to ring. The guy doesn't have to wait for a phone to ring. He can pick up the phone and dial up and ask for a date. It is completely different. And uh, and that's something that I just want to uh, help you really, really understand, because I can then go on to talk a little bit about what kind of woman you, man, should be choosing, and uh, what sort of man you should be. I know that today, and I've heard this, I mean, I speak to a lot of people, there are men who choose women on the basis of their earning potential there are guys who when they go out with a girl are doing mental arithmetic saying well if we add her salary to my salary what sort of house could we afford to buy that's what's going through their mind and um, you know what ladies can tell when that's happening also if they are smart i can always tell when that is going on when a a couple Uh, come to talk with me and uh, introduce them the it's usually i know the woman or i know the man he wants to introduce the the chosen one Uh, i can very often tell exactly what is going through his mind and if he hasn't consulted with me beforehand well then what will happen will happen but uh this show is an uh is an attempt to preempt some of those issues now um I will tell you a story of a very dear friend of mine um, a man in Southern California who became a hugely successful uh, entrepreneur in uh, I, I'm, I'm I was gonna say what industry I'm not going to say now because I don't want any risk of his identification possible but um Uh, there i once said to him so what is the if you put your finger on what launched you when i'm not asking for the secret of your success or you know what did you know that no one else knew but was there a moment at which you turned right instead of left where you decided to go this way rather than that way and that put you on the road to your amazing success today and he said, nobody's ever asked me that before, but I'm ready for the answer because I've thought about it a hundred times. I know the exact moment when this happened. I said, tell me. He said, it was a number of years ago, many years ago. I was, uh, I was working. I was trying my hardest to start a business on the side in, in my time. And uh, I was struggling. My wife and I didn't have much. Um, w- w- I was really, really trying to make this all work. And I said, so what happened? He said, well, I was on a flight and um, uh, there was a um, uh, an unexpected uh, flight delay. And so everyone had to get off the plane again. I'm sitting at the back of coach and I found myself uh, walking off the plane with somebody who was in first class. And we, we walked together and we sat down together in the uh, terminal waiting, waiting for the flight to be recalled and re announced. And it turned out he was a very prominent clergyman. Um, if I told you his name, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, right now, you would know the name. If I told you the church that he built uh, in Southern California, you would know probably certainly if you're from the uh, southern california area you'd certainly know the church it still stands today but it's uh, used by a different denomination than the one by which it was built anyway he says so i'm sitting and talking to him and he wants to know what i do and i told him and he then began to talk about this vision he had for building this unique and distinctive church and uh, Before we got onto the plane, before the flight was re-announced, he looked me in the eyes and he said, I want you to support my building of this church. Would you do it? And he said, I said to him, I was a little taken aback. This has never happened to me before. He said, uh, and I said to him, well, what do you have in mind? And he said, I want you here and now to solemnly pledge to me that you will give a million dollars to the building of this church and he he's saying to me he said look rabbi you got to understand asking me for a million dollars back then would be like me suggesting that uh, you write a check for 20 million dollars to something he said "It's, it's absurd uh, it was completely, my wife and I were paying rent and we had to make sure we had rent every month. A pledge for a million dollars. He said, I, I couldn't even begin to imagine what what I would, he said, out of the question. He said, but I I felt something, I felt strangely moved by, by this man. And I, I said to him, you know, say again, the man said to me, I want you to make a pledge to be a founding member of this new church. Uh, You don't have to pay it off today or tomorrow, but I expect you to pay it off within two years. I want you to commit to paying a million dollars towards the building of the church within two years' time. And he said, Rabbi, I don't know what came into me, but at a certain point he said to me, this is for my benefit it's for the glory of god and above all it is for your benefit and then he said and you'll either understand that or you won't and he said i i thought i didn't say a word for about 10 seconds and i then turned to him and i said you've got my pledge he says i went home and uh my heart was in my mouth. I didn't know how I was going to tell my wife about this. And to my absolute astonishment, I tell it to her. And she says, I, I understand. We're just going to have to pay that off within two years. And I don't know if she at that moment understood something I didn't. But I do know that the faith that she demonstrated at that moment She didn't yell at me. She didn't condemn me. She just said, well, we'll have to pay it off with the utter conviction that that's what we'll have to do, and that's what we will do. He says, between my wife's conviction and confidence and between my own knowledge that there was a million dollars that had to be made surplus to our needs— That means that I had to produce much more than that to be able to pay off a million dollars in two years time. He said, well, he said, all of a sudden, I began to see myself as somebody capable of great things. I began to see myself as moving in a different zone. I saw myself as a business professional capable of making that kind of. Of generous gesture, he said. I felt completely different about myself. I began moving comfortably in circles I felt I never had access before to than that. I started attending services at this pastor's church. At that point, it was only um, it was in a temporary building. He said, and at the church. I'm being introduced around as one of the leaders of the church and one of the builders of the new building, and I began to meet men and women in a different category from those I'd been meeting up till now. He says, well, I must tell you that within four months, I resigned from my job and focused exclusively on my business. I have to tell you that within a year of the date and i had a a sign on my bathroom mirror i had a piece of paper with the date that the pledge was due and it said a million dollars and such a date february the 14th um, and the year he said within a year of my making the pledge to pastor so-and-so he said i walked into church one sunday morning and in the collection i put a check for a quarter of a million dollars. That was a year from the date I met him on the plane. I put $250,000 in the collection. And um, he said, six months after that, I paid off the remaining $750,000. Less than two years was when it happened. He said, you asked me, when was the moment that changed everything for me? The answer is, the moment was when I made a pledge That was ridiculously beyond anything I was able to actually do. Gentlemen, I'm speaking to you. When you seek and choose a woman who will do you the huge, immeasurably tremendous honor of allowing you to support her, allowing her to be a homemaker. When you choose a woman to whom you say, there is nobody else with whom I would rather bring new life into the world. There's nobody else with whom I would rather bring a child into the world. And there's nobody else other than you who I would choose to be the woman who not only gives birth to that child, but raises that child imparting. Spiritual values, bestowing physical health, and creating a child who has a relationship with me as well. Because, and this is Lappin's rule number one hundred and fourteen, you can't go wrong depending on this rule, gentlemen. If you are to have a relationship with your children, it is going to be only because of your wife. The fact is that children intuitively have a relationship with mom. You know, I've seen a lot of tattoos. I've even seen tattoos on guys who've served hard time incarcerated, which, as you know, I believe is a very, very, very bad part of American criminal jurisprudence. But I've seen men with tattoos that have the word mom under a heart. Do you know that I have never yet seen a tattoo on a guy with the word dad? No matter where you are in life, you still have a relationship with your mother, but not necessarily with your father. If you have a relationship with your dad, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, it comes from seeing how your mother related to your father. And so guys, you want a relationship with your children and trust me you do, then you need to select a wife. A uh, as uh, select as a wife, a woman who is willing to do exactly that. A woman who is willing to rise above the utilitarian notion that a woman's value is only economic a woman's value is only in terms of the money she can earn and that somehow a woman who is obeying the whims of a boss at work and running ragged because of a client is somehow superior to a woman devoting herself to the needs of her husband and taking care of her children that somehow that kind of wife and mother is secondary, is of lesser value than the utilitarian notion of a woman as a moneymaker, as a wage earner. Gentlemen, if you do not find the word housewife to be one of the sexiest words in the h- English language, if you don't recognize the word homemaker, To be one of the most enchanting and beguiling descriptions of a woman, then you are not ready to be married. But if you are, and then you will discover that the majority of women you meet have been conditioned and indoctrinated to believe that their fulfillment comes from a nine-to-five job with a boss and with clients, that's where their true desire lies, and that somehow between the two of us we'll figure out child care. That is called utilitarianism, and it's just a fine way to build a zoo, but it's no way to build a home. Let me explain something to you that, uh, that, that I find fascinating, and I'll only spend a few minutes on it just in case you do not find it equally interesting. It is this. Turns out that at the beginning of February 2020, uh, the a magazine called The Architectural Record reported that it had obtained a, an advanced copy of an intended executive order that was going to be issued by President Donald Trump, titled "Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again," making federal buildings beautiful again. Well, I have not um, yet. I've not. Fed, uh, I've not verified whether um, that is true. The executive order, um, as far as I know, has not yet been issued, but maybe it will be. But here's what fascinates me. The last time there was governmental involvement in the architecture of federal buildings um, came about in 1962. Now, if you are a regular student of mine, if you have been paying attention for a while to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show or my writings on Thought Tools, or our television show, then you already know that I look at the period of roughly 1962 to 64 as the identifiable moment when things began to plummet downhill in America. Um, you know, just just to give you an idea, uh, the the birth rate back then was about 20 births per thousand of the population. Um, It is now 12. And the plummeting, you can actually look at the graph and see the plummet begin round about 1962, 63, 64, 65. And, uh, you know, why is that important? Well, uh, birth rate indicates the state of optimism in a country. Uh, it measures the connection with a transcendent reality like God, and um, it also bespeaks economic vitality. Um, not surprisingly, you won't be shocked to hear that uh, the birth rate in Japan is seven per thousand. Um, in Israel, by the way, it's 20 21 per thousand right now uh, in the united states of america it's 12 and falling but the big drop um, was round about that period of 62 to 64 um, yes it's true the birth control pill came on the market then it's true that the immigration reform act of 1964 dramatically changed um, the immigration pattern to america from christian to Muslim. Uh, All of that is absolutely true, but um, interestingly enough, there was this huge change. They issued guiding principles for federal architecture. Up till then, federal architecture was classical in style. Classical, and you know what that means. Basically, Um, Greco-Roman. It's an oversimplification to just speak about the columns, but you know, this is really easy. If you have any interest in this, you can easily go online and look at examples. Um, but I will tell you one of the interesting examples: in that Penn Station in New York. Penn Station in New York was built in 1910, and it was magnificent. It, it you'd have a look at the old Penn Station, it looks it, it's glorious. It really is. I mean, it's it it looks like a Greek temple, and um, it's wonderful. Then it was demolished and rebuilt, I think, in 1963. And it was turned into, I mean, it looks like you're going down into the cellar when you enter Penn Station today. It's, it's horrible. But I cannot say it nearly as well as an architectural historian at Yale University, a guy called Vincent Scully who I found to be an interesting person, and um, he wrote about the old Penn Station that was demolished in this period, 1963, and they built Madison Square Garden over the sort of the new rebuilt Penn Station, and he writes about the old one versus the new one, and he says, one used to enter Penn Station feeling like a god, Nowadays, we scuttle into it like a rat. And he's absolutely right. One of the big differences between classical architecture and what I'm going to call a Stalinist brutal architecture is that the former makes the human being feel big You feel uplifted. You feel enlarged. That's a good thing. Because if I am made to feel a nothing, if I'm made to feel a nobody, if I'm made to feel a rat, if I'm made to feel myself to be small and insignificant, then don't you see my actions can be small and insignificant because nothing matters anymore. But for me to be worthy of acting with largesse, acting generously, uh, foregoing insult, for being a bigger person, uh, for being a giving person. If I am going to be a big person in my behavior, then it helps for me to be made to feel a big person. And what I'm telling you now is the underlying principle that has lain at the foundation of building from the very first time human beings crawled out of a cave. And I, I say that somewhat humorously because I don't anyway, that's that's another topic. But it has always been a question of what impact does the building have on the human beings inside of it? Is this thing built to glorify the architect, or is it built to glorify the people in it? And the soviet style of architecture big brutal frightening overwhelming is designed to make the person feel utterly insignificant so you shouldn't have any dangerous notions of being significant because you are nothing you are just part of the state you are a mindless nameless cog in the machinery of state ambition and by golly the building is going to make you feel that and so if you look at what government housing looks like from 1962 onwards you look at the housing they build it's horrible it's designed to make you feel nothing but a faceless number you're just another little ant in the machinery of the state and that's why if you are unfortunate enough to live in government housing that was built post 1962 you will be living in exactly the same house as the person next to you and the person on the other side and what is more you probably aren't even allowed to paint your front door a different color uniformity everything the same everything block shape everything designed to destroy Any form of light and brightness and uplift, anything that could possibly make you smile and see yourself as a child of God. That is the secret. And if you think about it, the genius of the genius of um, of cathedrals and beautifully designed synagogues and churches is this how on earth do you build a big building that is designed to hold a lot of people without making people feel small that is a real challenge it's not easy to do at all that takes a real architect and a lot of classical church architecture pulls off this feat you're standing in a big building and you look upwards, and the uh, the ceiling, roof stretches away into the distance, and yet somehow you feel uplifted. You feel like a bigger person for being there. You don't feel that you have been diminished into just another ant. It's rather wonderful, but the fact is, for those of you who, who are interested, you can take a look at the uh, buildings, the federal government buildings, post-1962, and you will see, and I mean, look at the FBI building in New York, in, in Washington, D.C., for a start. But anyway, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of governmental buildings built around the country from 1962 onwards. And, uh, and you will see that all beauty has been stripped away. It is utilitarian. It's block-like. It's designed to glorify the builders, not the people who use it. It's designed to shock not to blend. It's not saying I am part of the neighborhood. It's really, it's a punch in the nose. You, you come across it and you're overwhelmed and you are literally made to feel as if you are nothing. You don't count for anything at all. That is Soviet style architecture. And that is what was introduced in 1962 And one of the best examples, as I say, is Penn Station pre-1962 and post-1963, but there are literally hundreds of other examples. And now that you know that this cutoff date of the early 60s, um, you can probably look at government buildings in your travels around the United States of America, and you will be able to look at a building and say, hello, this was built before 62. 62. Or look at a building and say, oh, this is built post-62. And the person you're with or the guide or whoever it is will say, really? How do you know that? And you can say, my rabbi told me. (laughs) Now, you can say whatever you like. but, um, But that is the reality. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because socialism in all its many forms, okay, fine, let's not be rude. Let's be polite. Progressivism. Uh, leans towards the utilitarian why because it has as its foundational principle that we are nothing but super evolved primates we are just animals we are uh, stronger than some weaker than others slower than some faster than others uh, more hair than some less hair than others it's we're just another point on the spectrum of the evolution of the animal kingdom that's all And if that's the case, then that's all we need. The idea of beauty is in itself a challenge to that worldview, because who would think about making a cage beautiful? Really? Does that armadillo in your circus actually care that the cage is beautiful? No, it cares that it has enough room, that it is warm, and that it has enough food, and that's all it cares about. It's utilitarian. And so it is that the post-1962, the state's view is that human beings need nothing but that. And so housing for people sad enough to have to depend on state housing, well, it's just like a cage. It's just got to provide you with the right square footage, enough heat, water. That's all you need. The idea That you want to live in a place that uplifts your spirit as well? Out of the question. What do you think you are, a human being? Absurd. That utilitarian view permeates almost everything that liberalism, leftism, socialism, progressivism, and communism inflicts upon the indomitable human soul. And so I don't know if that uh, executive order is going to happen. If it is, I will be um, very grateful because it's an executive order that says federal buildings now can abandon the horrible guidelines of 1962 and re-embrace classical beauty. One of the reasons that it's making me happy is the absolute cascade of scathing horror all around the internet and the thought universe oh the left is going crazy at this merest rumor of a presidential executive order decreeing a return to classical elegance on buildings that we the taxpayers are paying for wonderful or whether it happens or comes to pass, I can and do but pray. We don't know more than that. But what is this to do with weddings? What is this to do with marriage? Well, it depends on whether you view marriage as utilitarian or part of God's plan for human interaction. And if you see it as purely utilitarian, then gentlemen that woman that you are thinking about sharing a life with she has no value beyond providing sexual relief and economic aid because everything else can be purchased getting her to work as quickly as possible Means that you will have additional income. You will be able to, when the time comes, you'll have children, you'll hire childcare, you'll put your child in government mandated childcare because this is the way, because she is entitled to her fulfillment. Listen, to each his own, every woman is free to choose whatever she wants to do, but I'm only giving advice to guys who want to hear from me. And that is pick a woman who thrills, who thrills to hear you say, I want you to give me the honor of supporting and protecting you. I long for the delight of living in the home you helped me create. I want to share every part of life together with you. I want to devote myself to you. For the rest of my days, I deeply desire the honor of supporting and protecting you. Not because I don't think you can make money yourself. Of course I do. But I see your value in the home we build to be far beyond the utilitarian. I don't see you as just another person with slightly different plumbing. No, I see you as a wife, a woman, a homemaker. And those are things I cannot buy anywhere in the world at no marketplace for all the money in the world. Only you can bring that into my world. That's why I'm asking you to marry me. The man who passes on the others, Pass on the women who are so indoctrinated to believe that their only ultimate fulfillment is utilitarian and economic. And you, in turn, have to be the man worthy of such a woman. You have to learn that you never, ever speak of my money. It's always our money. Because the truth is that it is only because of her confidence in you that you thrive and prosper economically she is as much a part of your economic reality as setting off to work every morning she is as much a part of your economic reality as your interaction with your boss your employer with your customers and your clients she's a much a part of your economic reality As the check that gets placed in your hands every week or every month it's our money not my money because we are a true partnership I am a husband you are a wife and I have the supreme honor I'm being allowed to support you protect you to take care of you provide for everything you need Wow That moment where you make that pledge, the moment where you say that to a woman and she bursts into happy smiles and laughter and tears and throws her arms around your neck and says, of course, that moment is the moment where you can later look back. And when your rabbi says, so what was the moment that changed your financial destiny? What was the moment that put you on the road to prosperity, you will be able to smile and say, hey, Rabbi, you know the answer to that. That was the day on which I proposed to my wife and she accepted because the proposal was on the terms that I made a pledge way beyond anything I would have thought I had the capacity to do. But the Pledge produced power, as it always does. And that's really what the commitment is all about. Now, before I bring this in for a landing and clarify one other critical aspect of all of this, I want to remind you of the website. It's rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over to the store because uh, you could download very easily economically at great value uh, the ancient jewish wisdom video series take a look at this this is uh, each dvd each show is four half hour shows that susan Lappin and i do on specific topics you're going to enjoy it and from what people tell me although um i'm I'm very blessed and I don't take it for granted. I literally give thanks to the Lord every day of every week for the wife that He brought to me and for the marriage He has privileged me to participate in building with my partner. A lot of people tell us that one of the things they enjoy on these TV shows is the interaction between the two of us. Now, we're, we're not aware of that because it's subconscious. You know, we just, we interact on the shows we do in real life. We thought that the only value we were bringing was the ancient Jewish wisdom we impart. Each show, we pick one particular theme of ancient Jewish wisdom, something that is a practical tool that you can use either in your financial life, uh, your faith life, your social life with friends and your life with your family or your spouse Uh, we teach those principles we thought that is the main value and i still think it's the main value but a lot of people write to us uh tell us how much they enjoy seeing the two of us interact and it's it's interesting because the shows are not scripted uh, and so we don't always know what the other person is going to say and uh and you know Anyway, enough said, uh, I, I think it's it's a fun show and it's a valuable show, and it is available to listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show right here at a special price. You can download it as an MP4 download right there at the store at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, You can also go to youneedarabbi.com. You'll end up in the same place. So you go to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, you're able to read up about the ancient Jewish wisdom TV show and you can download the shows depending on the themes and the topics you're interested in. Um, You can also go to the page, if your heart in any way pulls you in this direction, you can go to the page on the website and find the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. On our website at rabbidaniellappin.com about us, you will see a section, the AAJC, the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. And if your heart uh, pulls you towards making a gift i'm not going to (laughs) say you don't don't make a pledge of a million dollars please but um if your heart pulls you to make a gift uh then that page allows you to do that and uh and you will advance the work of the american alliance of jews and christians Uh, you can do that uh you can also write to us and Susan and I both derive considerable encouragement from your letters to us. We really appreciate it. Uh, You can also read back issues of Thought Tools, of Susan's musings, of our weekly Ask the Rabbi column, and there's always a very lively conversation in the comments section following each of those. All of that at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and so I I welcome you to do that. I also welcome you to—no, more than welcome—I actually ask that you uh, help promote this show— the Rabbi Daniel Lapin podcast by uh, telling people about it or or better yet sending people a, a URL sending them and you can listen to it on you know whether it's iTunes or the Blaze or or uh, podcast I mean wherever you listen to podcasts you can hear the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show and you can direct people to this show all of which is uh, is very very much appreciated um, it's it's great for us, and uh, it's great for some of the plans we have coming up in the future. The more people we can share them with, the more economically viable the whole thing is for everybody, and I think it works well for everybody, certainly those who derive value from the teachings of ancient Jewish wisdom. So um, I said that uh, there was one more point, and, and there really is, and that is— um do women feel no i know there are women who feel women who delight in being feminine homemakers women who delight in helping their husbands maintain their sense of confidence in the difficult challenging task that guy's face constantly of going out and killing bison and dragging them back to the cave the woman who builds up her husband and the woman who fills him with confidence conviction and determination a woman who is and here is a phrase they use which many women say with pray, with pride and i praise women who have learned to stare the adversary in the eye and say with complete pride, I am a stay-at-home mom. I am a homemaker. Yes, I am a housewife. And the husband who is able to admire and support and have pride in his wife, who renounces the praise of God contemporary society and replaces it with the recrimination and the criticism oh she's just a housewife she's a stay-at-home mom oh she's nothing but all right well all of those people know that um, the western world is beset at the moment by a crisis a crisis of fertility people not having children And more than that, a crisis of confidence, a crisis of uh, men not being willing to work. That's right. You realize, do you not, that unemployment right now is overwhelmingly not a problem of not enough jobs and not a problem of people without skills. No! The problem of unemployment today predominantly Is men who are unwilling and incapable of getting up every morning, going to work, taking orders from a boss and being cheerful in executing those orders, dealing with customers and clients. It's men who are incapable of the discipline of work. That's right. That's where we're up to today. And there is no government program on earth that can cure those men. There's no government program that any bureaucrat or any puerile policy has ever come up with or ever will come up with that will get men like that into the workplace. Not going to happen. My friends, there is only one place that produces great citizens There is only one place. Now, there are always, you know, there's always the rare exception, but overwhelmingly, statistically and reliably, the one place that produces wonderful citizens that a society needs in order to be self-sustaining. Don't we hear that word used all the time? Oh, it must be sustainable. Well, there's only one way that a society can be sustainable, and that's by having solid citizens with solid values. And there is only one place that comes from. It's called the family. And my friends, as we approach the climax of today's show, I want to state unequivocally that families are built by wives and mothers. Let me say that again. Families are built by wives and mothers. Nations are built by husbands and fathers. But families are built by wives and mothers. Nations are built by husbands and fathers. And here's the big problem. The two are utterly interdependent. Because if you don't have a successful nation, good luck trying to build a family. Because the bandits of a collapsed culture, the predators who prey in the shattered ruins of a nation will always home in on the prosperous pantries of successful families and they will plunder them. Without a strong, viable, successful nation, good luck trying to build a family. But without a family, good luck trying to build a nation. And therein lies part of the secret of this divine magical, God-given gift that we call marriage. It's not utilitarian. Sex can be bought. Home care can be bought. Child care can be bought. This is not utilitarian. That's the way the Soviets looked at it. That's the way socialists look at it. That's the way government bureaucrats to the present day look at it. This is the way the European Union looks at it. Oh, this is just a utilitarian socioeconomic relationship between two different people. Sometimes they have different plumbing. Sometimes they have the same plumbing. It makes absolutely no difference. Don't you believe it? And if you can have the courage to stare down the popular culture and know what is true and know what is right and build the kind of home that can only emerge from a god-given vision and not from a soviet style or socialist bureaucrat vision of utilitarianism where a woman is not just another economic cog no i will be happy to have the honor of taking care of the finances but i can only do that with your love with your conviction with your confidence i can only do that with you smiling at me every morning and welcoming me home every evening i can only do that knowing that my children are not at a government daycare center but my children are in your arms in the warm embrace of the home that we have created together you give me that i'll take care of the money i pledge that solemnly only and that pledge will produce the powerful conclusion nothing to worry about that is what we're talking about the commitment to the gross domestic product how much the family gives to the gdp oh and a woman who is a stay-at-home mom she is not adding to the national gdp yep spoken like a soviet bureaucrat you're absolutely right but without her There will be no future, there will be no citizens, there will be no good people, there will be no builders, there will be no people desirous of themselves sustaining the culture, the civilization, and the nation by having children. It is not an accident that in the 1950s up to 62, America revealed its confidence, its vitality, and its vision by its high birth rate. It's not an accident that starting in 62, running through the 60s, that plummeted to nearly half today of what it used to be. And it's no accident that in Israel, which remarkably, and by the way, don't think that this oh, it's some of the Arabs in Israel have a high birth rate. It's not true. Many of the Arabs living as Israeli citizens have become very westernized it is the Jewish birth rate in Israel that has it at one of the highest, if not the highest figure in the developed world. Uh, most of Europe plummeted, Japan very low. China, by the way, is the same as the United States and, um, and dropping rapidly. Uh, the, um, the this is a different topic, but very, very worrying fact for the Chinese is the very high proportion of the population that will be old uh, in the very near future. This is unavoidable. There's nothing can be done to change it right now. And that is a huge problem when the population pyramid gets inverted. But what are you going to do, right? When people are not willing to make this incredible marriage commitment to one another a woman committing to place her economic survival and hope and everything in the hands of a man and a man willing to undertake everything in a special partnership with this amazing different creature called a woman if you take that away people will stop getting married because utilitarian citizens do not need marriage they don't. Only people touched by the finger of God need it. So, my friends, we have to come to a stop now. I urge you to visit rabbidaniellappin.com on the web, our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Be in touch. Let's hear from you there. And uh, I thank you so much, as always, for being part of the show. I wish you all, till we're together, God willing, next week, a week of very good times of good times with your faith, good times with your finances, good times with your friends, and yes, on the topic of today, especially good times with your families. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.